Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 309 of uh, Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300. We uh, hope you enjoy this episode as much as uh, we did putting it together. Uh, I'm here with Sarah Archer today. Uh, Hannah's still not with us, still on maternity leave, but uh, she'll be dropping in from time to time. We do have uh, Alyssa Pressler back again with guest hosting with us from That's Novel Books. Hey, Alyssa. Hi, I'm so excited to be here again. Yeah, it's great. And uh, Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm happy to be here too. Yeah, all right. So, uh, Let's tell our listeners uh, what's coming uh, for today. Um, we're going to start out uh, with an author feature. Um, Sarah did this interview, Bobby Finger, a popular podcast host and author of the new book, The Old Place, uh, An Affectionate Portrait of Small Town Life. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book, so I'm excited to bring that interview to you. Um, we also have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt from Paul Reale called Keeping Momentum. And then we also have a community blog by Mickey Morenci. Uh, her blog post is about how to write in your third language, which I'm super excited to hear about. Yeah, and we're going to review our 10 uh, helpful, ten more helpful articles from our community blog in the, in the early stages, uh, more about uh, reading and writing uh, tips. We had a good time talking about uh, 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 10 of those in our other episode uh, that just uh, released, and uh, we're going to do more of that in this episode. Um but uh, let's just uh, kind of jump into to Act One here. Um, you know, we've got uh, you know things going on. We're releasing several episodes uh, this month um, because we're trying to shorten the content a little bit uh, in each episode. So uh, if you listened last week, you'll know there's a lot going on with the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, the Charlotte Writers Club. You can go to those websites. You can check out uh, their activities. Um, uh, but we do have uh, this thing called. Uh, feedback uh, with our listeners. Uh, you can go to our uh, website uh, to the contact page and you can give us feedback uh, by email or by video. And we have one. Um, and I asked Sarah, Sarah, I think he, he missed the deadline, but uh, since the topic is procrastination, you said, well, let's play it anyway, right? Yeah, I think we predicted. We're like, I bet someone is going to send us something about procrastination after the deadline. <laughs> and of course it happens. So that's kind of perfect. Um, but we're, we're always looking for that feedback and, and insight. So we're happy yeah, to hear so it. We'll, we'll start out with that. Hey guys, my name is Bruce Overby and my debut novel, The Cyclone Release, is set to launch on November 15th of this year. On the topic of procrastination, I, like many people, am often sucked into what my wife and I call the vortex by which we mean social media. I'm a Silicon Valley native, so social media is something I've been doing since 2008. 
And being a writer, I do try to manage it closely. But in a bizarre twist, getting my first publishing contract for my debut novel has actually made the problem worse. As your author guests frequently mention on your show, it's important for any author or aspiring author to have a platform. And it turns out the creation and the care and feeding of an author platform, not only social media, but a newsletter and author website as well, takes a lot of time. And with a novel coming out this year, I absolutely need to make that a priority. More than that, I have to admit, social media and all the other book promotion activities I'm working on now are things that I kind of enjoy. So these days, they all add up to a huge distraction from what I should really be doing, which is working on my stories and my next novel. It's a nice problem to have, of course. I do have a novel coming out after all, but it's really been a challenge trying to focus on the work with these pressing promotion activities constantly nagging at me. Yeah, well, thanks, Bruce, for that. And uh, we won't get on you for missing the deadline. We know you're probably scrolling social media <laughs> at, at the time, but uh Hey, um, you know, listen, you weren't on here when we talked about procrastination before. Does that ever enter your life? Oh, only a couple of times a week. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I am someone who likes to work uh, well under close deadlines, so I usually procrastinate until I can't anymore, and then I get it done. Yeah, deadline can be a good thing. It can be a stressful thing sometimes, but I've always found them to be uh, very helpful in getting getting the ball moving forward. Uh, so, yeah, so um, since we were recording um Back to back here a couple of times, just uh, to remind uh, my co-host, this is going to release on uh, October the 14th. So as you're uh, playing this uh, time travel, you know, let's talk about what's going on in our communities, uh, at, you know, around uh, October the 14th. Uh, what's your news, Sarah? So, um, well, it will be right before this comes out, I will have just given a talk to Charlotte Litt um, on the 13th about the business of screenwriting, which hopefully that will have gone well. <laughs> Let's put that out there into the universe. And then I'm actually going to be doing another um, class for them in February. So you'll still be able to sign up for that if you're interested talking about screenwriting. But the one in February is going to be a little bit more in depth. It's going to be three different nights over three weeks um, talking more about the craft of screenwriting and um, kind of designed for people who maybe have done some screenwriting or are interested in trying it out or even people who write fiction or nonfiction but kind of want to learn tips from screenwriting that you can can take into your work and give your work kind of that Hollywood edge so um, that's going to be a lot of fun and I'm hoping to see some of you there. Yeah what's in your world uh, this mid-month October? Uh, so mid-month October personally I will be celebrating a wedding anniversary so a little oh, sweet cool. shout out to my nice. husband here we'll be celebrating six years. Congratulations! Uh, Congratulations! You. That is uh, is really good. It's uh, it's something to worth a celebration. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like to do a lot still. So that's right. I had to find my button here on the on the mixer to get that done. But uh, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Outside of that, though, uh, we will be halfway through Booktober Fest, which is Promising Pages month long um, kind of community activation to get books into kids hands throughout the years. They are focused on helping uh, children of all ages build their home libraries, which I am obviously a big advocate for. I love a home library. Um, that's Novel Books, which is my bookstore, is a sponsor of the event this month, which means we donated to it. And then we are also a drop-off location. So if you're looking to get rid of some children's books for any age, really, um, and hope to get it into the hands of some children who could really use it, you can actually bring them to That's Novel Books. We have a box set up 
um, all year round, but this month we're really trying to focus on driving donations up to help their mission. That's great. Well, on October 14th, uh, I'm going to be on a plane to Ireland uh, for a twice postponed uh, nice. golf trip uh, that uh, was supposed to happen three years ago. And, uh, you know, it. Uh, I think it, it rains sometimes uh, in Ireland, so we're got to go <laughs> make sure that I have all my gear ready. But uh, we'll be there'll be some warm pubs with some nice uh, Irish whiskey to uh, sample as well. So uh, that's where I'll be uh, about this time. Uh, no book events in Ireland, none planned, no, not, nothing, nothing like that. So we'll have, have fun doing that. Uh, hey, and uh, before we jump into book recommendations, uh, just uh, just real quick here. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, so now we got book recommendations, a fun part of the show here. Um, Sarah, we'll let you go first today. Yeah, so I've got um, a couple of recommendations for books that I actually have been listening to on Libro.fm, which is a great way to um, to get into some more reading. Um, the first is When We Are Bright and Beautiful by Jillian Meadoff, um, which is kind of a contemporary drama about a family, a wealthy family, whose uh, son gets arrested for a rape charge from an ex-girlfriend and is going on trial. And it's told from the perspective of his sister. And it's um, kind of an interesting and layered case, the way it plays out. You never exactly know, even with the sister, the main character, exactly what the truth is or what secrets different people are keeping from each other or from the readers. Um, so it's sort of a very uh, complex plot that unwinds um, and has a lot of social implications for it as well. And then the other one that I've been listening to is Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm by uh, Laura Worrell, which is about this trumpet player, a jazz musician, and the the women in his life. He's kind of like a classic old school ladies man, um, I think mm. is how they describe it. Um, but it's talking about him and also the ladies <laughs> and their stories, too. Um, the writing is lovely. The prose is, is really beautiful. It's also a world that I don't know that much about. So it's been kind of interesting to dive into. Um, so, yeah, I've been lis- uh, enjoying listening to both of those. Yeah, well, speaking of Libro.fm, I'm, my book recommendation uh, in this episode uh, is also a book I listened to uh, through Libro. Uh, it's called Ithaca by Claire North. It released in September um, it, it's uh, the story of Penelope of Ithaca, the famed wife of Odysseus, uh, uh, as they say, never told before. It's told through her perspective, um, and it's really interesting because it's told in her perspective and also in perspective of one of the uh, female goddesses. Um, and really, it's all about the you know how the the men controlled uh, not only what happened uh, in that fabled world. I mean, the the poets wrote about all the adventures of the men and made them the heroes and the women were little they sort of took a back seat but this story tells it from the from the female perspective which i found uh, to be very interesting and i learned a lot about the whole uh, you know this is uh, this is not the iliad this is the odyssey this is when odysseus is trapped on an island for 10 or 20 years and penelope is running ithaca and his absence and all these suitors from other islands are there to try to you know, become king of Ithaca and she's trying to hold them off because if she accepts one, the others will kill her and kill them. So very interesting book, uh, fun to listen to. Uh, Alyssa, what's up with you recommendation-wise? I am also going to recommend an audiobook. book. Um, I listened to it on Libby, though, not Libro FM, although I do love those as well. 
Um, I am recommending The Change by Kristen Miller. I think it's a perfect book for October. It's got this kind of thriller, spooky, magical realism approach to the story. It is about three uh, women who are kind of at their midlife crisis um, and discovering that they have these special powers and they band together to use these powers to hunt down a serial killer on their island in um, Long Island. Uh, they're using it to hunt down a serial killer who is preying on young girls. So it's a very feminist book, um, strong female characters. I really enjoyed it. Um, the story was fascinating and I just couldn't put it down. That's great. And we also have a recommendation here uh, from Mark West at Story Charlotte Blog. Hello, this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte Blog. My recommendation today is a collection of poetry titled The Meta Forest by Martin Settle. I always think of Martin as Marty, and I've known Marty for many years. Marty has had a remarkable couple of years in terms of publishing. Just last year, he published a memoir titled Teaching During the Jurassic, Wit and Wisdom from an Old Hippie Teacher. I enjoyed this memoir, part because I'm an old hippie teacher too. But his new book reflects Marty's interest both in poetry and in nature. The title of the book stems from Marty's clever combination of two words. One of these words is metaphor, and the other is forest. He put them together coining a word, metaphorist. At first glance, this book might look like a collection of nature poems, but actually it isn't. Yes, nature figures in the poems, but Marty uses nature as a metaphor for ideas and emotions that humans wrestle with on a regular basis, ideas like desire and survival and the nature of thought itself. Marty uses nature as a way to write about these concepts. It's an excellent collection of poetry, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, listeners, uh, Martin Settle was on the podcast with his book, uh, Teaching During the Jurassic. I really enjoyed that book. There's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of... Uh, practical advice about what it means uh, to be a you know hippie teacher without following all the rules and the directives and everything. But uh, there's a little bit of synergy here because uh, when I heard about uh, Marty's book, I uh, reached out to him and said, hey, Marty, we got this thing uh, where we're inviting authors to do elevator pitches. Uh, you should do one. And, and he took us up on it. So uh, let's hear what he has to say. The Metaphorist by Martin Settle is a collection of nature poems, but not just any nature poems. These contemporary poems are in line with current ecological discoveries and philosophies. The themes of the Metaphorist fit into many of the new words and terms that are becoming salient in these times. Symbiocene, Wood Wide Web, Anthropocene, Grammar of animacy, mutualism, and mycorrhizal networks. The poems in this collection find
find delight not only in the existence of so many creatures, but the metaphorical language that they provide us with. This book was released September 1st, 2022. All right, that's a nice elevator pitch, kind of piques your curiosity, does it not? Yeah, those terms he comes up with are fascinating, and those, I think, give you a real insight into kind of the flavor of the book. Um, it sounds very unique, so I'd love to check that out. Yeah, so, uh, all right, we got some, and as listeners, as you know, you can go to the show notes. Uh, you don't have to take notes during this session where we throw out our book recommendations, but we'll have uh, these in the show notes, uh, and uh, we're about to move to Act 2 in just a moment. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in Act 2. Uh, we've got an author feature now. Uh, we're going to be featuring uh, Bobby Finger. Uh, Sarah did this interview. The name of the book is The Old Place. Uh, Bobby's a writer and a co-host of the popular celebrity entertainment podcast, Who Weekly, a Texas native. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. The Old Place is his debut novel. And uh, Sarah, give us a little synopsis there. Yeah, um, I had a great time reading this book and talking with Bobby. Um, the Old Place is about this retired school teacher in a small town in Texas that's mo- modeled after the town where Bobby actually grew up. Um, and she has certain secrets and her best friend has secrets and kind of everyone in the town has their own backstories and secrets that unfold a little bit at a time over the course of the book to the, to each other and to the readers. Um and so the, the story actually only takes a week in the present, but you get a lot of flashbacks that take you through the history of these people and through the town. And the tone is, um, it, it's emotional. There's a lot of like deep character development and drama there, but there's still some humor too, and a, kind of a, an affectionate poking fun in some ways at small town life in Texas. And um, as the synopsis puts it, it's about coming out and letting go and realizing that the worst lies we tell are the ones we tell ourselves and that it's never too late to make things right or to start over. Um, And J. Ryan Stradal, author of The Logger Queen of Minnesota, says, with a wise and kind heart, Finger has written a novel as full of memorable characters, secrets, and epic family drama as any small town. Book clubs are going to love this vibrant debut. Um, Yeah, and I had a great time talking with Bobby and got some, some really interesting insights and tips out of his interview. All right. Well, let's uh, let's play that interview. Um, well, Bobby, thank you so much for being here. We're we're super excited to have you, and I loved the old place. Um, it was such a fun read, and this is your debut novel. And I believe, as of when we're recording this, is coming out in a week, right? Like a week from a week from today. today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So, how are you feeling? And do you have anything planned to celebrate? Uh, I'm I'm feeling very weird. I I'm feeling I'm feeling a way I've never felt before. I I'm, it's like mm-hmm. kind of anxious. I was talking to my mom about this recently she said how you feeling and i said Mm -hmm. i feel very weird i feel very anxious and she just said why (laughs) she said it's finished there's nothing you can do and i said well that's sort of true so um but i do i i'm i'm excited mostly um yeah and i'm gonna go the biggest celebration is it happens to coincide with my mom's birthday the time i'm gonna be in san antonio because I'm doing an event oh, nice. in Brooklyn the day it comes out, a week from today, mm-hmm. and then I'm doing an event in San Antonio 
two days later. So I get to see my family, which is just going to be really nice. So I'll be in Texas for like a week, which, yeah, yeah, that seems like a celebration to me. Yeah, that seems like the perfect way to celebrate. Um, That's super exciting. So your background, for for those who don't know, um, is in advertising and journalism, particularly like celebrity and pop culture journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a podcast called Who Weekly, which is awesome. (laughs) Everyone should go listen to it. (laughs) You know, leave this podcast and go listen to that one. (laughs) No, wait until this episode's over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can can do that. Um, but the world of this book obviously is a very different world from, you know, entertainment and celebrity culture. This is set in a small town in Texas. It features kind of ordinary people, you know, who are like nurses, school teachers, those sorts of people. So can you talk a little bit about your choice of subject matter for the book and how the story came to you? The story came to me, well, the choice of subject matter is so different from what I do for my job, kind of Mm -hmm. by design, um, that, it's it's we do three or four episodes a week at the time I was writing it we were doing four episodes a week um it's a great job it's a fun podcast I hope to do it forever but when Mm -hmm. I was writing fiction I wanted to be in a completely different space kind of just from down to the fact that it was a different headspace to be in right I wrote a lot of this during the pandemic and so it was Mm -hmm. it was an escape from not just that, but from work, um, adding something new to the routine, a completely different bucket, a completely different story. So um, I, I think that was sort of by design. I would never want to write a novel about celebrity, really, because I do enough of that in my in the other part of my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story came from. It's not, you, you know, autobiographical by any means, but it's definitely set in the town I'm from. So I changed the name, but, you know, mm-hmm. geographically, physically, it's the same place. There's the same stoplight. There's the same store. There's the same school. It's just, you know, named differently just so I could distance myself a little bit because I created all these fictional characters. None of them are based on, you know, my family or, um, you know, actual teachers I had directly, you know, so I, I mm-hmm. needed to separate that a little bit. But it was the place I spent the first 13 years of my life, and it's the place that my parents lived for much longer before that um it's where my dad's from my grandparents are from so it's special to me and it's um it's a town i think about often and i think about you know how the trajectory of my life or the trajectory of anyone's life could have changed had i made any sort of different decision or my parents made any sort of different decisions where it's like what if, what would have happened if i had stayed what would have happened if i had left later what would have happened if I had left early and so the book was kind of a way of working through those sorts of questions that have been running through my head for 20 years more and um I think yeah that's the end of my that's the end of my answer <laughs> yeah yeah uh, <laughs> no, that, that's that's really fascinating because it sounds like in a way it was sort of an escape from your your normal job and day-to-day life but also a return to your roots and exactly to, yeah you know some deeper things at the same mm-hmm. time um so i imagine that was a really interesting writing experience mm-hmm. to to kind of juxtapose those it, it was it was and it was but it but it uh, also let me kind of revisit learn things about that town that i'd never known and learn things about san antonio that i'd never known so mm-hmm. there was a lot of like really pleasant discovery there too Oh, that's nice. Being able to revisit places, you know, mm-hmm. and see them in a new light. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so the, the main characters in this book, Mary Alice and Ellie, you know, they're, they're both older women living in this small town. Um, obviously, on face value, they're pretty different from you. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in talking about, you know, what, what it was like for you to write these characters and how did you get inside their heads? Because they feel so real and three dimensional. They, they totally feel like real people. Uh, it was... It was like remembering I, I, to go back to to my childhood. Um, I I've always liked writing fiction, just never. Um, I'd never really tried my hand at like a full a, a, a manuscript, a novel before. Um, I in college I also liked. Um, in college I studied advertising, and that's what I did, you know, professionally after I graduated. Up until mm-hmm. I started the podcast and did that full time. Um, and also when I worked at Jezebel, but I studied screenwriting and I loved, I loved that kind of writing. I loved that form so much. Um, I never really considered doing it. I wanted to do it professionally, but the barriers to entry were just too great. And I didn't really have it in me to do that, but it's just, it was sort of a hobby. I loved it. I loved those classes. Um, I loved the workshops. I really like writing dialogue and i really like writing um in screenwriting i the the notes i would always get were i had too much description in between the dialogue um Mm -hmm. and they'd say that's not really what you need in a screenplay it really that you you have these big blocks of text that shouldn't be there and so but i always liked doing that i always liked internalizing the the characters more than maybe the dialogue um and so that's just always been something i've enjoyed like putting more on the page that needs to be on the page. And then it's like, oh, well, Mm -hmm. there's an answer for that. It's writing a novel. So, um, and in terms of like these being women, older women, and I am not an older woman, I think a lot of that goes back to my childhood growing up in Texas in this small town because I was surrounded by all of these people all the time, just kind of observing them, listening to them, but not really engaging with them. So there was just a lot of, I don't know, childish listening and just Mm -hmm. trying to understand what all these people are talking about. And I was not close to them in sort of an adult sense because I wasn't an adult. But when I look back on those memories, I just kind of have these bullet points of people and I try to fill out those memories. I try to like really make sense of what that town did to me, what these people did to me. And so there is a lot of like, there's a lot of, fictionalizing in that unfinished memory, you know, and all of that Mm -hmm. kind of bleeds into the book, you know, like it it makes it easy to sort of understand who people like these women are, even if those specific women don't exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally see that in reading it. Um, And it's interesting, too, that you mentioned you have a screenwriting background, Mm -hmm. because I can, I can feel in this novel, how it's almost like a good balance for you between having that tendency of loving screenwriting and being good with the dialogue, but also wanting to get a little bit more into the narration description, Mm -hmm. because you do have a style that's very, we're sort of looking at these characters with, we're, we're inside their heads a bit but it's not a totally open door. Like we kind of get to know them a little bit yeah. more and more as we go through. So it has that kind of camera's eye point of view. Um, and I think it, it works really well, the balance there where we we're sort of in their heads and mm-hmm. we get their voices, but we're also just have just enough distance that there's a bit of a mystery there. Yeah. Um, and there are questions to be answered as the story unfolds. So um, I, that, that's interesting. I can definitely see that in your style. Cool. <laughs> 
Um, also, one thing, this is slightly lighter, but I always love it when a book talks about food <laughs> <laughs> and tells us what the characters are yeah. eating. I always think that's fun. Um, and food definitely figures into the story mm -hmm. here. You see the characters, you know, cooking for their families and their communities. Um, there's a lot of picnic drama. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and food is really tied to a sense of place yeah. strongly here, too. Um, so are there any foods that remind you of home for, for yourself? There's, I mean, all Tex-Mex food, um, Southern food, but very specific ones. Because I know that like I'm from Texas, which is not necessarily the mm -hmm. South. But when I think of like chicken fried steak, my mom always made chicken fried steak. It's one of my favorite things. I don't really eat much red meat anymore. But when I go home, mm -hmm. I'm like, please make chicken fried steak, you know, yeah. pimento cheese, which is not something my parents ever made, but it was always around. So it's this this sort of like picnic food that felt like this delicacy, this treat that was only like at church, at a funeral, at a party, at a graduation or something. And um, really, really, it's it's Tex-Mex. It's it's chicken fried steak. It's chicken fried chicken. It's mashed potatoes. It's pimento cheese. It's um, it's tea and mm -hmm. breakfast tacos. But I, I'm so glad <laughs> I'm so glad that you enjoyed the food because I think that like you said, it's, it's such a strong, it's just, a, it's a strong representation of place, but also I think home. Mm -hmm. um, I like eating, I like cooking generally, but I, I will always, there are certain foods that I know that I will never be able to get where I live now. And I think everyone has like the, the certain dishes that just make them feel good because they remind them of home or family or the place they feel the most comfortable. And I, I just had a, I had a good time, like making those, creating those dishes that are symbolic mm -hmm. of that for these people. And it just so happens that yeah. they're like beans and potato salad because they remind me <laughs> of home too. But um, yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. Yeah, the, they evoke, I think, memories mm -hmm. and feelings at a very kind of basic sense level. Right. Um, yeah, it's, we're recording this at like 8 a.m., but now I'm getting hungry. <laughs> um, so I did have a few more questions, but first I would love to ask if you have a short passage you wanted to share with us, oh, yeah. um, to read a little bit from mm -hmm. the book. Uh, I, I pulled, um, it still feels wild to pick up the actual, um, finished mm -hmm. copy, but I pulled the, um, the end of the first chapter. There's, it just seemed like the easiest thing to read that didn't require too much context, but it's just uh, two and a half pages, I think. And it's what's happening here. It's Mary Alice and Ellie. They're on Mary Alice's back porch drinking coffee, which is their morning ritual before Ellie goes to work because Mary Alice is now retired. And they're just kind of talking about the town. They're talking about the new family that moved in. Well, the new woman who moved in with um, her husband, who's a local and discussing the fact that Mary Alice is retired and not too happy about it. You're crazy for not being happy. You don't know what you're talking about, Mary Alice snipped with a near laugh. Never did. Ellie scooted her chair to face Mary Alice directly. No more phone calls or unscheduled house visits with angry moms and dads, not to mention phone calls with stupid ones. No more conversations with Will and Gina and Lori and all those other fools you used to spend all your time arguing with in the teacher's lounge. No more filling in for a sick bus driver because you were dumb enough to get certification. She took a breath, then another sip, but she wasn't finished. Something lit up inside her. This was no longer one of Mary Alice's silly complaints. It was an affront to her own life. You think I'd still be working if I could help it? 
I know you wouldn't. She pointed at an old oil drum in the far corner of Mary Alice's yard to the right of the woodshed. You think I wouldn't throw these scrubs in that burn barrel and light them on fire if someone told me I'd have pension and benefits until I'm dust in the wind? Mary Alice turned away and pursed her lips. Okay, I get it. Good, she laughed, knowing one push was enough. Now will you enjoy this gift you've been given because that's exactly what it is, a gift. Don't you forget that. I will try to enjoy my time as a... She stopped and shuddered. Retiree. But I will never refer to it as a gift. You hear me? Not now and not ever. Is that good enough for you? I guess. They both took another sip of coffee, despite neither of them wanting more. What are you getting into today while I'm out saving lives? Nothing. Nothing. They sat in silence for a moment until a thought hit Ellie like an arrow. She darted her eyes towards Mary Alice, who immediately felt her gaze. You're planning on going to that school again, aren't you? No, Mary Alice said. I mean, I'd considered it, but no. What would you do there? Think about it. What would you actually accomplish besides killing your own time and getting on everyone else's nerves? Isn't killing time enough when you're retired? I'm serious. It's certainly better than killing myself, Mary Alice said, regretting the words even before she could hear them. Ellie turned cold. Don't, she said, the word piercing the air as her mug slammed down on the table. Don't you do that. Mary Alice flinched at her own bad joke, some combination of the sound and the memory roiling inside her, but straightened her back and put the moment behind her. To answer your question, I'd let them all know that I'm still here, she said. I'd let them all know that I will not, no, that I refuse to be forgotten. She had had the thought countless times that summer, but she'd never said it out loud. It felt different now. As a thought, it was empowering. As a confession to a friend, it felt self-aggrandizing and pathetic, and she cowered in her chair immediately after saying it. No one could forget you, Ellie said. If Ellie was a church mouse, Mary Alice was the cracked bell roaring over her head. How could they? You're too damn loud. Ellie was right, but so was Mary Alice. This was one of the keys to their friendship. They were never wrong together. So many people in this town had a way of bringing Mary Alice down, letting her wallow in her wrongness, but never Ellie. She refused to let commiseration become a hobby. Arguments, she thought, were key to making friendships work, which is why theirs had lasted so long, to varying degrees, since Ellie arrived in town. Ellie had surprised both Billington and herself by moving in. There was no family connection, no husband who dragged her kicking and screaming from the city. There was only a good job in Trevino and an affordable house 15 miles away in Billington. That she happened to move in next door to another single mother with an 11-year-old boy was pure luck, though she took it as a sign that she'd made the right choice. Though the Halls proudly inserted themselves headfirst into the community, attending Mass even though Ellie despised the church, signing Kenning up for all the sports but football so he'd have a shot at making friends, and volunteering at the modest senior center in the middle of town, few expected the Halls to stay long. Billington wasn't a place you arrived in, it was a place you never left. But against all odds, they sprouted roots on Mary Alice's whisper of a county road, and Kenneth and Michael's instant and overwhelming friendship nourished the one between their mothers. I'll call you tonight, Ellie said, empty carafe in hand. Hope you're not too miserable today. So you'll be fine if I'm only a little miserable? Ellie was already in the bushes, but she turned back. Everyone's a little miserable, she said. Bye now. Mary Alice waved, missing her already. With no coffee left, she had nothing else to do but think. Staring out at the horizon where the sun was high enough to make her feel like she, she ought to be busy, she went over the beats of their friendship. Ellie and Kenny moved in. Kenny and Michael became friends. In time, so did she and Ellie. And when they lost the boys one right after another, of course their friendship changed. Whose wouldn't? An acute understanding of the other's misery prevented either of them from resenting their sudden estrangement, but over time their grief transferred itself from their sons to their friendship. They'd lost the boys, but why did that mean they had to lose each other? Now, more than ten years after the accident, Mary Alice was glad she had finally decided to try a little harder. 
And every morning as she watched Ellie step up onto the patio, she was certain, absolutely certain, that it wasn't only because she had nothing better to do. That was wonderful. Um, and there was there was one line that stuck out to me in particular. It was something like um, arguments are key to making a friendship work, something like mm-hmm. that, <laughs> which I love. I think that's that's actually so true. Um, and that kind of hits at one of my favorite things about the novel in general is the way it depicts friendships. And they're very sort of nuanced and complicated. And you see these relationships evolving over time. Um, and there are a few different friendships that are, you know, between different pairs of characters that are really the heart of the novel. Mm-hmm. So actually, I have um, another question going back to your your background in journalism, particularly with you know pop culture and celebrity journalism. I think that's a field where you know sometimes the things you're covering are going to be a little bit silly or ridiculous mm-hmm. or kind of skewering people, but it's also at its heart really about I think observing people mm-hmm. and and people you find interesting and the choices they, that they make. Um, and this novel, of course, is very character based. Mm-hmm. It's very much about these people and how they relate to each other and the complexities within them. Um, so are there any ways in which your, your journalism work has influenced how you write fictional characters? I think the way that my journalism work influenced my fiction writing generally, I don't know that I can't think of something that, that affected the way I write characters in general or specifically, Mm -hmm. but something that, was so helpful with my um, brief journalism career when I worked at Jezebel was just the sheer amount of writing. It made writing routine um, or like kind of lengthy writing routine for the first time in my life. Like I was a copywriter in advertising, but that's completely different. That was writing, but that Mm -hmm. was almost like, it's like writing bullet points, you know? And so when I worked at Jezebel, it was the first time that from eight to six every day, I was just constantly churning out copy and I was constantly having to, there wasn't anything as explicit as a word count, but I was having to write all the time, um, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs. And so I think that just that regularity and that routine of writing, writing, writing um, made me more comfortable setting aside my hours a day working on this novel. It was, it, it felt a little bit more like second nature to me. Um, and also one of the things about writing for an entertainment blog or honestly any website in 2022 is that everyone's writing the same thing. Um, every website is everything now, you know, like mm-hmm. there's no such thing as a sports website, as a movie website, every website is everything. And to a degree that can be probably annoying as a reader, but also I think to the writers where it's just like, you're doing everything and having to do kind of everything and find maybe a slightly different perspective than another website was a helpful tool too. You know, like how can we set our website apart from everyone else who's uh, kind of in the same wheelhouse as we are, you know, like having that kind of unique voice and it's kind of finding what your voice is and, um, really leaning into it was uh, a helpful skill to learn there. You know, um, also I was just surrounded by incredible people every day. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that sounds like perfect training for writing. An it, I mean, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how is, it sounds like you, you definitely understand like discipline as a writer mm-hmm. and sitting down and getting the pages out. Um, what does your sort of process look like for writing this novel? Are you someone who writes at a certain time of day or a certain place or, you know, setting like certain goals for yourself? How, how does that kind of logistically look for you? 
my mornings were mostly the podcast when I was writing this. Mm -hmm. And typically when it's not, I'm when I'm not editing a podcast, which takes all day, um, it's my mornings that are kind of jam-packed. So I had to write in the afternoon sort of because that's all that was left. And I tried writing at night and I wasn't always very um, comfortable writing at night. I was kind of exhausted by then, you know, after six, seven, after dinner, it just didn't, it didn't click for me. And some mornings I would try if I had free mornings and I didn't like doing that, you know, right as I was drinking my coffee. So it was sort of by, I was forced into writing in the afternoon, but then that just became what I was very comfortable doing. It was the only time I could be, it was the only time it could be productive. So I just set a block of time every afternoon. Once I realized that was the time that worked for me, that I could get the most words out uh, every day. And I'm a big fan of routine mm -hmm. and I'm a big fan of deadlines. Again, another thing that came that provided um, another thing that became very helpful from not just Jezebel, but also my work in advertising, just the occasional strict deadlines, not always, but having a creative director, having a, an editor saying like, I need this by this time was very helpful to me. And if I hadn't had an agent, my agent, Kate McKean saying, I would like it if you could deliver me this manuscript by X date. I don't think I would have had it ready by that date. But the moment mm -hmm. I'm given a date, I'm like, I got it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, it's, I, I'm a big fan of routine and I'm a big fan of schedules. And I'm a big fan of having someone else make that schedule for me because in the same set, like, I tend to procrastinate unless there's some sort of external force saying, I need this. And the moment there's an external force, I'm like, oh, I need this. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, I'm not good at making my own, setting my own agenda in a way, you know, but if, if it's required by necessity, like then I'm then I'm good at it. Yeah, I think that's true for so many writers. Yeah. <laughs> like we'll procrastinate forever unless we have a deadline. Yeah, unless there's like a slap Sometimes on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, so one last question for you. If you could go back in time and talk to your younger self and give yourself a piece of advice to help you as a writer, is there something in particular that you would tell yourself? What would I tell myself? I think the main piece of advice I'd give myself, my younger self, that I th I think relates to writing, but I think it just mm -hmm. relates to everything. It's that you don't have to make a decision right now. Um, write what you want to write when you want to write it. Um, and don't think that just because you decided to write this type of thing now means you have to write that type of thing forever. Because mm -hmm. my whole career, I've been a writer but in different forms. And uh, again, going back to the routine thing, I'm sometimes I feel like, you know, because I'm doing this now, I have to do it forever. It was like that with advertising and it was like that with journalism. And um, I think it's good to know that you can always sort of pivot, change your direction, even if it's only slightly or greatly, you know, it, at any point in your life. And I think that's sort of what's happening to a lot of the characters in the old place. So there's definitely a, a bit of that lesson in this novel. I'd like there to be at least. Yeah, that's so true. That that definitely comes through in the novel. Um, and I think that's such wonderful advice. And it's not something you hear that mm -hmm. often. You're very much told like, you have to 
to pick a lane yeah. and pick a brand and this is what you do and you commit to it and you build yeah. on it. So um, it's, it's wonderful to both hear you say that and to see how you've actually put it into practice in your career. <laughs> and it's, it's clearly doing well for you and you're, you're making wonderful work. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's wonderful advice. Yes. And um, thank you so much for being oh, here, Bobby. We, we really appreciate having you and can't wait to share the old place with everyone. Thank you. This so congratulations. Thank you so much. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're in Act 3, and uh, we've got uh, a Charlotte two-minute tip and also a community blog post. Uh, first off, we've got uh, Paul Reality with Charlotte Lit with his tip uh, on keeping uh, momentum. So let's listen to that and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Hi, I'm Paul Reale from Charlotte Lit with a two minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. From my many years as a writer, editor and writing coach, I've developed a list I call the immutable laws of writing. Immutable law number one is the words will not write themselves. Today, here's immutable law number two, an object in motion stays in motion and an object at rest stays at rest. Sir Isaac Newton, of course, said this first, and not about writing. Still, writing is a natural act, possibly a force of nature. It is just as subject to physics as everything else is. Applied to your writing, the object in question is the work you are producing. When you work on a project regularly, you take advantage of momentum. You end one day of writing eager for the next, eager sometimes to find out what happens next. Momentum has many benefits, especially for longer projects. Long works can have many threads, many arcs, many voices, many characters, all living in your head at once. This isn't to say you can't take a break from a work. Breaks can be good for your writing. But the longer it's been since you last worked on your project, the longer it will take to restart, to bring all the components back into your head. So here is your action step for keeping momentum. Choose to write something you love, something you want to spend time with, something you want occupying your headspace. Don't select a writing project because you think it's trendy or easier to get published or will make you tons of cash or is the story others keep telling you to write. Tell the stories you truly want to tell. That love will feed your momentum. You will write because you have to see how it comes out. And as a bonus, this will sustain you later when you are in the 8th or 14th round of revisions and you dislike the thing more than you've ever disliked anything. For more two-minute tips, listen to the Beyond 300 episodes of Charlotte Reader's podcast or visit charlottelit.org slash tips. All right, Paul's building on the momentum he uh, had from the last episode where he was talking about uh, words don't write themselves and now he's talking about keeping that momentum going. Uh, thoughts on that, uh, Alyssa? 
Yeah, it's funny. His uh, tip last episode connected with the blogs that I read, and the same happened today. We're going to hear about it a little later, right? The more challenging book. But going back to that piece of writing something you are passionate about is really what is going to keep you going and keeping you wanting to return to the work and excited about it. So I, I loved that little tidbit from him. Sarah? Yeah, I think that was such a good point that um, picking a project that you love and that you actually want to write in the beginning is important to sustain you because it's true. Like you're going to go through a lot of drafts typically with something if you're actually going to try to you know get it published or do something with it. Um, and no matter how great the idea is, there's probably going to come a point where you hate it. <laughs> so it, it helps to have that initial passion for it. Um, and yeah, I think momentum is is such a valuable and important force in your writing. Um, the longer you take between writing sessions, sometimes the harder it is to get back into it and to, you know, get yourself warmed up when you're writing. I know one thing that I try to do sometimes is when I'm finishing a writing session for the day, I'll try to plan out what I'm going to start next um, and like what I'm going to work on next so that the next time I jump in, I already have an idea of what I'm doing. And I'm not just sitting down at my computer like, wait, what is this? What am I here to do? <laughs> it helps to give yourself kind of concrete tasks. So yeah, just keeping that momentum going um, keeps it fresh in your mind and it's going to save you a lot of time overall because you'll be more productive every time you sit down to write. Yeah, I, I like this piece for the, uh, you know, tell the story that you want to tell. And oftentimes, uh, you, you know, that may not be the first thing you write or the first book you write or the first uh, story you write. You may not find those characters or those settings or those, uh, you know, voices that you like to be in until you've uh, written some. And uh, and that's okay, too. But once you find it, uh, I think it does help to keep that momentum. So find something you're excited to write about. Uh, it could be something you're passionate about. It could be something that, uh, you know, you, you just want to explore because a lot of writers have said on the podcast that they they learn about things uh, when they write about them. So uh, use that process. And uh, speaking of learning about things, we've got a community blog post here uh, uh, with uh, author Mickey Marinci on uh, how to write in your third language. And uh, she is uh, she was born in Haiti. She's a graduate of Northeastern University and the Institute for Writers. Uh, she advocates for the voiceless in her community. She's vice president of diversity and inclusion at Women's Fiction Writers Association. Uh, we've had a number of writers on from that uh, group as well. Her debut novel, The Island Sisters, launches in June of 2023. So she's planning ahead here, getting a little press out there with uh, a blog post. And writers, you can do that. You don't have to wait until you have a published book to uh, you know, get out there and start uh, writing and being published. And uh, we've got a blog post uh, opportunity for you. But uh, yeah, her stories have appeared in Writer's Digest magazine, the Tampa Bay Times, Weekly Challenger, print magazines and e-zines and she lives in florida with her husband hope she's doing well uh, after the hurricane uh, let's listen to her post here and then we'll uh, we'll talk about it how to write in your third language like with every skill writing comes easier to some than others my elementary school language teacher in haiti often would call on me to read my stories to the class I was the teacher's pet of writing. Back then, Haitian Creole was only a spoken language, but it is the language every Haitian speaks. I would in French, which was the official language of my birth country. Haiti was a French colony before becoming the first black republic when it gained its independence in 1804. Growing up without a library and limited resources to purchase books, 
I wrote the stories I wanted to read. My narrow vision of the world did not limit my imagination from traveling to other worlds that I had built. My French words gave me wings to fly. When my family immigrated to America, I lost my voice. I enrolled in an English school for immigrants. I met people from many countries in the world. It was the quietest school I had ever attended. No one wanted to speak the new language we were all learning for fear of making mistakes. We used body language to communicate our homesickness and our losses. When I started to write in English, I would think of what I wanted to say in French and using the French-English dictionary that was my constant companion, I would translate the words into English. It was not a good idea. I read these stories in class in heavy accented broken English and no one laughed. We all sounded the same. However, high school was a different experience. By then, my writing had improved, but my voice hid deeper inside, refusing to come out. Classmates laugh at my clothes, my hairstyle, my food, my name, my accent, and my silence. I ignored them while I read like I needed to read every book in the Boston Public Library. I would every day because I had a lot to say to myself to assimilate into this foreign culture where nothing was like anything I had ever known in my life in Haiti. Nothing except our humanity. But some people wanted to take that away from me as well. I was an alien. How not to talk to an immigrant? Don't step into her space. She can hear you from where you stand. Don't speak loudly. She's not deaf. She only has an accent. Don't speak slow. She can't necessarily read lips. Don't code switch. Speak normally. Don't laugh. Please don't laugh. Of all the things I have lost coming to America, I have also gained a new language. I have only ever published in English. Go figure. It happened when I caught myself one day thinking in English. I knew then I could also write in the new language. Many years later, Haitian Creole had evolved into a written language. Now I can write in three languages. I choose to write in English because I live in America. I can reach a wider audience, and it had become my second language, pushing French down to third. Here are some tips to improve your writing in a foreign language. Read voraciously in the new language. Write something daily. Don't translate verbatim from your native language to the new one. Think in the foreign language. Speak in the new language. Take classes in the foreign language to immerse yourself in the culture. Don't ever let anyone steal your voice. In the end, writing in a foreign language is no different than writing in your native one or any other language. Great writing is about following the universal rules of proper grammar, relevant research, and weaving a compelling story that will keep your readers up at night, turning the pages. Yeah, thanks, Mickey, for that uh, 
for that blog and for your honesty and your you know courageous a- approach to um, learning a new language and uh, particularly ignoring the criticism and uh, using reading uh, to get through that. Uh, thoughts, uh, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I I think anyone who can write in a second language, let alone a third one, is a superhero. (laughs) It's so hard to write, even just in your native language, and then to take on top of that, filtering through another language that you don't necessarily understand as well, and all the the nuances and subtleties of how the language works. Um, So I think that's really amazing that she can do that. And um, I think she gave some really great advice, too, about, you know, don't let anyone steal your voice, and how important that is to let that translate through, even if it's... Um, a language that you don't know as well. And remembering that writing is writing, you know, the the story is still the same, the characters are still the same. Um, Those sorts of foundational elements are still going to come through. So that might give you some confidence to know that even if I'm using different words, my my story is still essentially the same. um, And the, the principles there are the same. Um, but yeah, she, she gave some really good advice about, you know, reading in your new language, taking classes, immersing yourself in it as much as possible. But most importantly, that just sticking to your voice and being confident in that, I think is, is really great. Yeah, Alyssa. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just in awe of her and her story. And I, like, you know, you said, Sarah, I, it's hard enough for me to write in my native language, let alone a language that I, I would be learning or just getting used to. So I'm just in awe of her perseverance with that. I also um, love that one of her tips is, you know, reading a new language. I think it's just a, a must. If you're a writer, you have to be able to read and read creatively or critically, I should say. Um, and so even when you are trying to write in another language, that that continues to be the number one tip for, you know, excelling as a writer is to read and read voraciously. Yeah, I think that's a consistent theme uh, coming through that uh, if you're going to be a writer, uh, you know, be a reader too. If you don't like to read, you shouldn't be a writer. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, that's uh, like saying if you don't like to <clears throat> go into an operating room, you probably shouldn't be a surgeon, you know. So, um, all right, well, uh, we are going to uh, move to uh, our Act uh, 4 now, um, just after this. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, this is uh, part two of, uh, of the blog post that I wrote where I went back and reviewed uh, helpful articles about writing and the business of writing on the Charlotte Roos Podcast uh, community blog. Uh, we did this in the last episode. We're going to knock out uh, 10 more here. These are the earlier uh, episodes. Uh, now, if you submit to our blog, uh, you will you might get uh, to hear yourself, uh, you know, like Mickey just did, uh, uh, reading your blog post. Uh, so opportunity there. Just go to the website, uh, Community Voices, and you'll find the, the link there. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through and just uh, hit the highlights of each of these. So uh, you can always go back and uh, go to our website uh, on the Community Voices and read these blog posts if you're interested in learning more. Uh, we're going to hit the highlights. We're going to start with uh, Sarah first this time, um, and she's got uh, an article by Brooke Reynolds. Yeah, so Brooke's article is called Finding Time to Write in a Busy World, um, which is you know an eternal 
problem for writers, it feels like. Uh, the article dives into the question facing writers with busy lives outside of their desire to write. How do you find the time? Um, this is something that definitely seems relevant for her. I think she said that she's a vet as well as a mother, as well as a writer. So she's got a lot going on and she gives some really good concrete advice in the article about how to kind of schedule out your writing and how even finding small bits of time can um, can really add up over time and how she's adapted her writing process, especially after she had kids and had to kind of concentrate that time more and, and make the most of it. Um, so there's some great stuff in there. The excerpt we have here is find a routine. Are you a morning person? Then wake up just a few minutes early each day to jot those thoughts down. Are you an evening person? Then curl up in the quiet of evening and write those stories while others dream. When do I write? Whenever I can. On weekends, it's early in the morning when the kids are still asleep. During the week, it's after the kids are in bed when I can sit down with a beer on my laptop. Just keep writing. And that's great advice. You know, just keep writing however you can, wherever you can find the time, um, you know, find a way to make it happen. If she can with everything she has going on, I feel like the rest of us can too. <laughs> yeah, and Alyssa's a busy person. Uh, you, uh, you you got, that's now a book. You got a day job. You got, uh, like you said, your mom. You got uh, <laughs> lots going on. So you, you committed last episode to write uh you know, at least 10 minutes a day. Uh, so when do you work that in? Whenever I can, just like uh, the the post just said, anytime I can. Last night it was while I did a face mask in my bathroom real quick before I washed <laughs> it off. I had 10 minutes to wait and I just grabbed my journal and started writing. Sometimes it's real quick while I'm drinking my coffee and just take a quick break in the day. Um, sometimes it's waking up early. It's truly whenever I can find those those few minutes, I'll, I'll grab them. Yeah, I do think that... Uh, Emulating other writers' uh, practices can sometimes be good, but often detrimental as well. That is, uh, just because somebody else who's a New York Times bestselling author gets up at five in the morning and writes for four hours doesn't mean you have to do that, because uh, there are a lot of them that write at different times. So pick the time that works for you and the space that works for you uh, and make it happen. Um, all right, that leads into uh, the next one, Kimry's Top 12 Writing Tips. This is by Kimry Martin. She is a very successful writer. Uh, commercial fiction writer here in Charlotte. Uh, she's an emergency room doctor, and she writes these uh, sort of emergency room fiction novels, um, medical thrillers, I believe they call them, that, that have been praised by the New York Times, among others. And these are her 12 practical tips for the perfect novel. That is, uh, and let me just give you a hint, this is sarcasm. Uh, if you do the opposite, uh, all will be well. This is a really fun article. You should go read it. Uh, you'll get a good laugh. Here's an excerpt. Use lots of adverbs. Adverbs are how you describe things. Use them liberally and festively. People really love that. Just ask Stephen King or Elmore Leonard. And also use similes creatively and copiously. Her hair was dark like the octagonal black squares of a new soccer ball. <laughs> and her eyes were as cerulean as a crayon. And as for the Oxford comma, if, comma, you, comma, won't, comma, to, comma, be, comma, a, comma, writer, comma, you, comma, must, comma, share, comma, your, comma, important, comma, opinions, comma, own, comma, the, comma, Oxford, comma, 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 with everyone, right? So what do y'all think? Makes that was me great. Mad. <laughs> <laughs> the Oxford comma bit did it for me. I, yeah. If you're a writer, you have a strong opinion on the Oxford comma. <laughs> you will share it with someone at some point, right? <laughs> Exactly right. I think Stephen King described adverbs as like uh, daisies that grow in your front yard. You should kill every damn one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're doing your word search, uh, whatever you use, Grammarly or or pro writing or whatever, 
search for L-Y, and if you see those L-Y words, you can always use something else to describe it a little bit better. Yeah. All right, that's, uh, you're up next, uh, Alyssa. Yes. Uh, so next one is, oh, shoot, I lost my place. Write the more challenging book, which is the post I mentioned earlier by Colin Zerniglia. Yep, I think that's close, yeah. Fabulous. Um, so the article kind of explores the question whether to write the more cookie-cutter nonfiction book, which Colin, you know, had a feeling would do really well for him, or the one that he was more passionate about but also was going to be more challenging and require more work. Um, his wife encouraged him to write the more challenging one. Here's a little excerpt from that. As we all know, writing is a laborious process. We might as well write what makes us happy and passionate, even if it is the more defying route to go. So that that is my challenge to you. If you come to a fork in the writer's road, I hope you choose to be assertive and write the book that takes you out of your comfort zone and into a world of adventure, which I just loved. I know we said last uh, episode that life is too short to read boring books, um, taking away from our earlier advice from Charlotte Litt. And uh, this one, I'm, I'm taking that further and saying life is too short to write something you are not in love with and passionate about. Yeah, that's great. Sarah? Yeah, that's so true. And I think it comes through to the reader, too. Like, if you're passionate about the book, that's going to translate on the page. And if you're not, that's probably going to be felt as well. Um, so you might as well, if you're if you're making that time and effort to write a book, it's always going to be a challenge. So you might as well do it for something that you really love and that you really think is going to put some value out there. Yeah, we had Colin on the podcast, too. You can go listen uh, to, to our episode with him about that book. And uh, you know, as he said, it, he, he chose a route that, uh, and I think this is worth considering, you know, we mentioned this before, that authors write sometimes to discover things about themselves or the world around them, and that's probably m- more difficult to do um, if it's an area that you know a little bit about but not much, and you have to go dig deep uh, to find out more. So, uh, all right, uh, next up, Sarah. Yeah, next we have um, How Reading Can Lead to Cultural Understanding by Mark West, which is an article that explores how reading can make you more empathetic and more understanding of what people who aren't like you face in their lives. Um, he talks a lot about in here about children's literature in particular and uh, gives some great recommendations for books that talk about particularly the Asian American immigrant experience um, from the perspective of children's literature and just talking about how you know reading and getting to know other writers, going to literary festivals, things like that can take you outside of your own own little box and and make you understand more of the world and see things through other people's eyes, um, which I think is so valuable. So the excerpt we have is, by reading literary works about people whose lives are different from our own, perhaps we too can come to a better understanding of how others experience the world. And that is a meaningful step in the process of resisting prejudice, mm-hmm. um, which is such a true and beautiful idea. And I think that it's true for, for reading. It's good to read about people whose lives are different from your own, particularly from the perspective of writers who have lived those experiences. Um, and it's also a part of writing that is, is really important, is pushing yourself outside of your own mind in order to write characters who are different from you. That that does require a lot of imagination and empathy. And so I think that's um, one of the real challenges of being a writer, but one of the very, you know, meaningful parts of it too, I think. Yeah, more synergy here because you think back to uh, Mickey's, uh, you know, blog post that we just talked about, uh, which is talking about how people uh, speak to immigrants. Uh, you know, it's because they're <laughs> ignorant of how they sh- mm-hmm. should communicate with people that uh, are, are different, you know, from them. And uh, so I think reading uh, more broadly can expose people to those uh, 
experiences. All right, uh, next one is, uh, I may butcher your last name, Emily, Emily Cantonio. Okay, but uh, anyway, go to the blog post. Uh, it's, what is a rollerblading moment and why do you need one for your story? Uh, this is really really funny premise here. The article explores how to hook your reader and why. And, and she talks about the foundation for this article was an antidote shared by the main character in the opening pages of Jenny Offel's 2014 novel, uh, Department of Speculation, that went like this. I met an Australian who said he loved to travel alone. He talked about his job as we drank by the sea. When a student gets it, when it first breaks across his face, he told me, it is so beautiful. I nodded, moved, though I'd never taught anyone a single thing. What do you teach, I asked him. Rollerblading, he explained. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, here's the excerpt. Uh, Why are rollerblading moments so effective? She says, I have a couple of theories. First, they are impressive because of their economy. Notice that Awful doesn't need to take pages by pages to show us that she is clever, observant, funny, and emotionally affecting. She does with a handful of words with one antidote. This restraint is impressive and makes the reader eager to see what other feats Awful has in store for us. And I think... You know that that's a good lesson in writing. You can you can you can get across a lot with a few words, right? Yeah, I think that's so true. And it's also we talked a little bit in our last episode about a blog post um, about you know don't pressure yourself to finish a book if you're not loving it. And I think a lot of readers feel that way these days that there's so much content out there that they're not going to stick with something if they're not hooked in. So this just points to that idea that like you do have to hook your reader hopefully soon after they open the book. Um, and, and finding that perfect moment, that perfect turn of phrase or scene or anecdote to, to really draw them in is so key. So it's, it's worth sitting down and, and really taking your time to find that perfect thing to hook the reader. Gets back to our first 50 pages rule, right, Alyssa? Yes, absolutely. Got to get them quick. Um, otherwise, they will move on, yeah, as they should. Right. As they should. All right, you're up, Alyssa. All right. Next up, we're uh, going to look at There Is No Get To by Claire Fullerton. This article explores the idea that writing is about more than the way one is published, if published at all. I absolutely love this excerpt um, that we chose for this in the show. I actually wrote it on a sticky note in my journal last night because it spoke to me so well. Claire writes, I believe all writers write for the same reason, which has something to do with wanting to compare notes in this business of living. Whether we're published or by whom is not the point. The point is all writers are on the same path, propelled by an inexplicable urge to communicate in whichever way they choose to tell a story. Uh, that's good. Uh, yeah, which uh, you know, kind of reads uh, right into this next one, at least the title anyway. What mm-hmm. do you think, Sarah? Yeah, so uh, the next one we have is called Finding the Courage to Finish Your Manuscript by Kathy Izzard, um, which explores why finishing a manuscript and seeing it published requires uncommon courage. Um, and she kind of explores some uh, specific examples in the article about how long it can take to write a book, the amount of work it takes. And she's very honest about the fact that it's it's a long, hard, <laughs> grueling process. It's a lot of hours, sometimes years of your life that go into writing a book. Um, but the excerpt is, you will be showing up for yourself again and again. 
You'll be wrestling words onto the page with nobody watching. You'll be finishing chapter by chapter with no one paying you or offering you a prize. It is a slow, steady uphill battle, but like a mountain summit, there is a pretty great payoff at the end. When you can look back over 250 pages and see how far you've come, it is its own reward. Whether you ever make a bestseller list or receive a royalty check, that view alone is worth the climb. Um, which is so true. I mean, it's writing a book is a lot of work. Um, getting a book published is a lot of work. Promoting it, it's all a lot of time and effort. Um, but there's nothing quite like it, you know. And and going back to like the last article, we all just want to get our stuff out there and and communicate with our readers and share our stories. And being able to do that is its own reward. So um, she has some good good ideas in this post for how to actually see your process through um, and and get that work written. Yeah, Kathy's been on the podcast as well. She's written a memoir and uh, been very successful with it. She's also teaching, uh, I think, a class at Charlotte Lit this uh, all about uh, uh, indie publishing, getting your word out, work out into the world. Um, and uh, okay, well, you've heard about narrators. You've heard about people writing. This next post is uh, called Multiple Unreliable Narrators. What I learned from Stevenson and Faulkner by Mark Jampol. Um, as I said, it, it explores storytelling by using multiple points of view and also with unreliable narrators, which can be kind of fun because uh, you don't trust uh, who's telling the story. Here's an excerpt. An unreliable narrator is a narrator whom the readers cannot completely trust. Sometimes the narrator doesn't know everything the readers do. Sometimes the narrator is a liar or has a personality flaws that distort the perception of reality. A child narrator is inherently unreliable because the child sees and understands on a simpler, less nuanced level than adults do. Utilizing a series of unreliable narrators enables me to get inside my characters in an immediate fashion. We don't view their actions and words through the mediation of an omniscient and objective third person, but experience it firsthand as the characters do. And I found um, it's fun, I think, to experiment in your writing. I, I did it with a short piece that got published with an unreliable uh, narrator uh, because you can add some twists in a short uh, piece when it turns out that the story they've been telling uh, is full of lies. <laughs> what do y'all think about unreliable narrator stories? I love them. I love a good unreliable narrator. I think it just adds that element of fun to reading the story where you're just constantly second guessing everything. It's one of my favorite narrating types is, is unreliable. Yeah, and I think if you have a first-person narrator, I mean, they're almost inherently going to be unreliable because no person has an exactly perfect, flawless perception of themselves or of the world or of the people around them. Um, so that's such an interesting thing to explore with your writing is like, what are the ways in which your narrator might be unreliable that kind of can bring the character to life and make the character more interesting and, and realistic, perhaps, um, and also that can add new layers to the story, too. So I, mm. I love that idea. Great. All right. Well, just two more. Uh, Alyssa, you're up. Yes. This next one is called Voltaire Said It Best by Erica Hoffman. It explores her desire to write mysteries and what she did to learn more about the craft, in particular going to this conference where she heard from this really popular mystery writer and got some um, advice from him. Um, and it's kind of tongue in cheek. The foundation for the article is this piece of paper taped to her desk with Voltaire's words. The secret of being a bore is to tell everything I love. Here's a little excerpt. If you aspire to pen a mystery, I suggest a few things first. Go 
go to a mystery writers conference, read a bunch of mysteries, and join Sisters in Crime, where the magical Hank Philippi Ryan has been a past president. She gave us pointers. One, write a page day. Two, distill your book into a 25-word logline. Three, have a great first line. Four, keep a timeline of your story so there's some structure. Five, think about three acts of a novel like this. Act one, wow, that's strange. Act two, yikes, now what? Act three, how exciting. So that's what happened. And six, while writing, you should ask yourself, what would a real person do here? So great advice in this blog post. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah, I think it's got a lot. I mean, just in a short <laughs> couple of points, if you use that uh, and follow that advice, you'll be well along to you know, writing writing a good story. Yeah, I love that part about the three-act structure. I'm going to use that for sure. Yeah, act one, wow, that's strange. Act two, yikes, now what? <laughs> and act three, oh, that's pretty damn exciting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, well, uh, you're going to finish this up, Sarah? Yeah, so our last post that we're featuring today is by Frank Morelli, and it's called Fellow Writers Take Care of Yourselves. Um, and the post explores how demanding writing a novel can be and how writers might take care of themselves in the process. He talks about some of the challenges um, that, that make writing such a difficult thing to pursue, how you basically have like no downtime, <laughs> your work never ends, um, and it can be really psychologically taxing. Um, but he gives good advice for ways that you can you know, kind of practice self-care and get outside and maybe cook a nice meal, things like that to just take care of yourself and take care of your mind so that you're fresh for your writing. Um, the excerpt we have here is when living out your dream requires so much in the way of time, energy, and emotion and provides so few opportunities to unplug from the adventure and recuperate, it's important to steal time for yourself to create idle moments in your life designed to recharge the battery. That's easier said than done, so I'll share a few of the mental refreshment activities I found to be most beneficial, most accessible, and most affordable. Um, and so great advice there. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about how as writers, you need to, to find those little bits of time to write. And that's important. Like Alyssa, you finding your 10 minutes of time here and there. Um, but also you need to make sure you have a little bit of time to not write <laughs> and to let your brain kind of recharge. Because at least for me, I know sometimes that's when I get ideas, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to give your, your mind time to just turn off and think about other things too. Yeah, so Alyssa, what do you, uh, when you're not uh, doing all the things that you do, how do you uh, recharge your battery? Uh, funnily enough, it's usually by reading. Um, mm -hmm. I really enjoy just curling up with a book. And outside of that, I also like just kind of hanging out with my family. My husband and I are big game folks. Um, but I, I notice in those mundane moments of us just playing a, a card game together or something like that, inspiration strikes. You know, just like you said, Sarah, sometimes you have to take those breaks to have your next big break. <laughs> yeah, Frank's uh, been on the podcast before too. Y'all can listen to him talk. He's a great uh, young adult uh, writer and uh, I love his advice here. And for me, it's kind of you know, taking a walk or fly fishing or hitting golf balls or whatever. So, you know, just get out and do these things and and then you'll think of something. And then if you don't have your little notebook that uh, Alyssa is going to get from me, you know, you'll forget it. <laughs> So, so uh, all right, well, we hope um, if you've been listening and you've got a notion to write uh, uh, and write a post about something about writing, whether it be the business or craft of writing, that we've inspired you to do just that. It uh, uh, doesn't cost you a thing except your time. Go to our website, go to the Community Voices, log in and uh, take a shot at it. And, uh, you might be on a podcast. So uh, uh, we'll be right back here with uh, our recap and what's coming next. 
Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, takeaway time. Sarah? Um, well, I loved reading Bobby Finger's book and, and sharing that with the readers this time. And I feel like we've talked about a lot of interesting stuff today, in particular about sort of time management as a writer, whether it's, you know, keeping momentum between writing sessions so that you can make the most of that time or finding time in your schedule in ways that work for you, not necessarily the advice that other writers have about, you know, what works for them, but finding what works for you and your life and your natural rhythms to, to make that time to write, but also to not write <laughs> and to recharge when you need to. Um, so I think that there was some, some really good concrete advice today. That's great. Alyssa. I, you know, I kind of said it earlier. I think my biggest takeaway today is to, um, life is too short. Don't write the boring stuff, write the more challenging book, write the book or the story that you are more passionate and excited about because it's going to help you return to it continuously um, and also hopefully keep you excited even when you get kind of sick of it through revisions like you had mentioned, Sarah. So really good practical advice there to just, you know, don't trudge through something because you feel like you have to finish it. Um, write what you enjoy. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, the listener engagement uh, and, uh, you know, the elevator pitch uh, from uh, Marty and also, uh, you know, all these blog posts that inspire you to get out there and write. And uh, listeners, thanks for joining us today. And uh, Sarah, are you going to tell us what's coming next? Yeah. So um, in our next episode, we're going to have Alyssa again. Looking forward to that. And um, we've also got kind of like a special marketing themed episode this time. Um, we've got a book called Reach by Becky Robinson, who we interviewed. Um, her book has a lot of great tips for how authors can expand their audiences. So tons of really good, like concrete, usable information in there. Um, we've also got a marketing tip from publicist Linda Bouchard. And we've got Hannah chiming in remotely to give us her tips on working with a publicist um, and how authors can make the most out of that relationship. And of course, we'll have our book recommendations and more writing tips and more fun writing chatter. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have uh, another tip from Charlotte Litt, so we'll include that as well. So a lot of uh, marketing and uh, advice coming up in the next episode. So, hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. Uh, right on and uh, read on. <laughs>